All right, let's officially open this event. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we are all calling in from today. I am currently on the unceded lands of Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples joining us this evening. A very warm welcome to everyone joining us tonight um, for our discussion of refugee and asylum seeker law and politics in Australia. My name is Piper, I use she, her pronouns, and I am the president of the PLN for 2022. And it is my immense pleasure to introduce you all to our three fantastic speakers for tonight. Uh, we've got Malvina Hagedorn, Hannah Dickinson, and Sajad Askri. Welcome everyone and thank you so much for sharing your time um, with us all tonight. It's fantastic to have you here. To start off, I would like to introduce our first speaker for tonight, Hannah Dickinson. Hannah is the Principal Solicitor at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. An accredited specialist in immigration law, Hannah is the Chair of the Visa Cancellations Working Group and Secretary at Liberty of Victoria, which is one of Australia's leading civil liberties organisations. Prior to joining ASRC, Hannah worked at Victoria Legal Aid in their civil justice program, as well as in private practice at Karina Ford Immigration Lawyers and Clothier Anderson Immigration Lawyers. Thank you, Hannah, for coming here tonight um, and joining us on Zoom. Um, it would be fantastic if you could just kind of introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are now working in immigration law at ASRC. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for having me and hello to everybody um, and for the introduction as well, Piper. Um, as you have seen, I'm currently leading the Human Rights Law Program at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. It's um, a large legal team um, doing some really exceptional work as a sort of um, crisis centre, but also as a um, leader in representation um, of asylum seekers and refugee law and engaged in litigation, policy and advocacy, uh, as well as um, casework and um, one-off advice. Just briefly, I, I came from, I started in private law. I never imagined working in refugee migration law. I hadn't really focused on it in uni at all. Um, it didn't really occur to me until I did a placement at a private practice um, after completing my studies and I just really fell in love with it and practiced in private for a while and ended up um, in a situation where I really felt I wanted to represent people who couldn't afford that and, and that's what led me here. So thank you again for having me. Fantastic, thank you so much Hannah, um, what a great story. Um, our next speaker here tonight is Malvina Hagedorn. Uh, Melvina is special counsel at Russell Candy Lawyers Pro Bono Practice. She is a public interest lawyer with over 12 years experience specialising in refugee, immigration and citizenship law. Prior to joining Russell Kennedy, Melvina worked in the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and Refugee Legal and as a protection officer for the Indonesian office of UNHCR. Melvina was part of the legal team behind the successful M70 and M106 High Court case as well as the more recent series of court actions seeking to bring refugees on Nauru and Manus Island to Australia for urgent medical treatment. 
Thank you for joining us, Malvina. Um, kind of same question goes throughout to you. Um, if you could just kind of run us through your career so far um, and what's brought you to, to work um, in immigration and re refugee asylum seeker law. Thanks, Piper, and hi, everyone. It's lovely to be here um, and lovely to see all of you attending an, an event like this and having interest in, in current refugee policy in Australia. Um, I also just wanted to acknowledge that I too am beaming in from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people, um, which have never been ceded. And I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, in terms of my sort of background, I, I actually got into refugee law straight out of uni. Uh, so I was, I did a double degree in um, arts and law, and I kind of never thought that I'd become a lawyer until I studied refugee law and got really um, inspired. Um, and I was also volunteering at the ASIC at the time. Um, and it was, this was sort of early 2000s. So it was the peak of uh, the Howard era, the Pauline Hanson era, it's when the rhetoric around asylum seekers, boat people started to get really ugly. Uh, and, yeah, I felt very sort of politicised by that um, throughout my uni, uni days. And so I kind of got to the end of my law degree thinking if I can't do refugee law, I'm not going to do law at all. And I was lucky enough to, um, the year that I graduated the ASRC where Hannah is now, um, offered their first ever articles position uh, and I managed to get that position. So I had a, yeah, I had a bit of a dream run in terms of getting straight into the area of law that I was really passionate about um, and have stated it ever since. Uh, so I went from working at ASRC for a couple of years to then going over to Jakarta and working for UNHCR as a protection officer, which was fascinating because it would, it was sort of the other side of, um, you know, of the coin. So having worked in Australia and worked with a lot of people who came by boat from Indonesia to then be in Indonesia also work, working with the people, but before working with people who've been recognised as refugees or seeking asylum or recognition by UNHCR, um, who often then actually got on boats because there was uh, no faith in the resettlement process from Indonesia, um, was a, yeah, it was a very, it was a very interesting experience. And unfortunately, kind of confirmed a lot of my cynicism about um, the about the way that the international system operates to assist refugees and asylum seekers. Um, so then I got back to Australia and started, did a bit of um, freelance work for different um, for different legal firms. Uh, that was back when there was still legal funding for, oh sorry, government funding for legal assistance to people who'd come by boat were being detained and were seeking asylum. So I sort of went around Australia to different detention centres, um, assisting people to, to present their claims for protection. Um, and after doing that for probably six to seven months, just felt like I really wanted to work in a team again because it's the kind of work that's quite difficult to do on your own. And so uh, I was working from home with very little contact with colleagues. Uh, and so that's when I started working at Refugee Legal, um, which is there's sort of two key specialist um, community legal centres in Victoria that specialise in refugee immigration law. One is the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and the other one is Refugee Legal. Um, and I was there for a good six years uh, and then sort of, yeah, really enjoyed my time there. Um, but after six years, felt like it was time to move on and 
uh, did a little bit of work totally outside of the refugee and immigration law field. I was working um, for a tiny little NGO called Project Respect that works with women in the sex industry and women who have been trafficked for, uh, for sexual exploitation and help them sort of design a training program. And then this job at Russell Kennedy came up, which is where I'm at at the moment. I never thought I'd go into a sort of private law firm, um, but lo and behold, there was this uh, wonderful job that was uh, in the 100% pro bono work in the pro bono practice at Russell Kennedy. Um, and it, they, the, the pro bono practice itself specialised in refugee immigration and citizenship law. So I was lucky enough to, to get that gig and I've been at Russell Kennedy since 2018 now, so it's been a while. Um, and we have a, um, a large pro bono practice, but the dedicated pro bono team is quite small. It's just me, um, Artie Chetty, who's also um, a special counsel, and then our manager, Emma Dunleavy, uh, as well as a whole raft of other Russell Kennedy lawyers who work on uh, files to assist us um, in, in that work. Uh, so that's kind of, yeah, me in a nutshell and how I got to where I am now. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Malvina. Um, and moving on to our third and final speaker this evening, we have Sajad Askari. Um, Sajad is a former Hazara refugee from Afghanistan and is a contributor for The Age and Guardian Australia. Sajad is a Bachelor of Arts graduate in international relations and is currently undertaking his Juris Doctor at the one and only Monash University. Um, Sajad, I think it would be fantastic to hear from you more about your refugee experience um, leaving leaving Afghanistan and coming to live in Australia, if you would be happy to run us through that story. Sure. Thanks, Piper. Thanks, everyone, for uh, for attending this event. Well, my story is a refugee story. It's quite long, so I'll try to be short. <laughs> so, yeah, coming all the way from Afghanistan to, you know, Pakistan to Malaysia to Thailand and then to Indonesia and then to Christmas Island, and here I am in the community. So um, yeah, um, as said, my name is Sajjad. I am a, a former Hazara refugee, originally from Afghanistan, did my um, BA in international relations and human rights, and um, currently I'm doing my Juris Doctor here. Um, so the reason I became refugee, I was forced to uh, leave my country, Afghanistan, due to the persecution, discrimination, and targeted killing of the uh, Hazara minority in Afghanistan. Um, so I don't know if you have heard of the Hazara people in Afghanistan and that they are going through persecution for decades in Afghanistan uh, at the hands of Taliban, ISKP and other militant groups. Um, and then as a result of that, um, uh, uh, you know, I became refugee, where I went to Pakistan with my family. That's where I spent a lot of my time, unfortunately. Uh, because Hazara is a minority and uh, a Shia a Muslim in a majority state Sunni of Pakistan and Afghanistan are being targeted all the time. So my father was, uh, you know, killed uh, by militant groups for being a Hazara um, by these militants. And, um, and then I was forced to leave Pakistan uh, with my other siblings. Um, so my other brothers, they uh, left Pakistan and went towards Europe as a refugee. I uh, somehow, uh, you know, I didn't know where I'm going, but I left Pakistan at the age of 17 and um, uh, with other refugees and um, somehow went to Thailand. Didn't know where I'm going. Uh, 
um, I went to Thailand for some weeks and then from there with some other refugee uh, groups, I managed to go to Malaysia. Uh, at that time, I thought that, you know, I heard that in Malaysia, we have the, uh, the, the UNHCR, the refugee agency there who um, helps refugees in terms of shelter and resettlement. Um, so um, I was uh, in Malaysia, tried to get help, unfortunately couldn't got, um, you know, get help from there. Then um, again, I had to sort of, you know, um, leave Malaysia and go to Indonesia. So, um, and then I uh, made a boat journey from in Malaysia to Indonesia. So the real story, I think it begins from Indonesia. That's where I spend a lot of my time there. I thought Indonesia would be my last destination uh, where, where I would go and register myself with the uh, refugee agency UNHCR there. And, uh, you know, with the hope that I would get help and uh, resettlement to a third country one day. So it was 2012. Um, uh, I was in Jakarta and then went to Bogor, where there are a lot of refugee communities uh, there. Um, I went to UNHCR. Um, uh, Melvina uh, knows more about UNHCR and their work and the, you know, the difficulties with with and around resettlement there, especially with the timing that it takes a lot of time to get resettlement. I remember it was 2012. One day, you know, I was very tired, exhausted, running out of money without any hope of uh, not, not having any hope of what's going to happen with me. So I went to UNHCR, um, lined up, you know, early in the morning around 6 a.m. And then my turn, I got my turn to get uh, interview uh, at around 10 o'clock after many hours and then somehow the uh, officer didn't interview me the security guard at UNHCR office told me that look you know um, for, for you to get help or for you to get resettlement to a third country would be a minimum of 10 years so now as you wish you want to register yourself or uh, or you don't. And then somehow I said, that's fine. I registered myself, got a piece of paper from UNHCR as, as, as a uh, asylum seeker registered with UNHCR. Went back to Bogor, um, started living my life. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't live there because you know I was running out of money. I had no shelter, tried to get in contact with IOM, International Organization for Migration and other NGOs. Um, so I couldn't get help. There were a lot of refugees, um, you know, and I had uh, I had to also, you know, help my family back home. I couldn't get my mom and my sister because they can't make this journey. They are female. It's very hard. It's all illegal without any passport, without any visa. Um, it's okay for male and and for men to uh, to get caught uh, in at the airport or somewhere in Malaysia or Thailand and get detained uh, in detention center, but it's not really you know, uh, uh, easy uh, uh, for, for women to do that. So that's why they couldn't come. So somehow after six months of living in Indonesia, I was hopeless. I didn't know that I wouldn't get settlement. And, um, and then I decided to make a boat journey to Christmas Island. Um, I attempted uh, four times to sit on a boat um, to get to Christmas Island. Uh, I felt many times the first time our boat broke down, many people died. The second time I was um, caught by Indonesian police, we were put in detention. Uh, and then 
I escaped from detention. It's a it's a dollar return for refugees. They always get caught, put in detention, go to jail. Then we run away, we escape, and then we sit. Uh, attempt on a boat again. So that was my uh, fourth and last time that I was successful to, you know, uh, to sit on a boat, um, uh, uh, make a boat journey to Christmas Island. It took me, I think, around three to four days to get to Christmas Island. Uh, um, luckily, I was, I, I got to Christmas Island. Uh, sadly, I lost a lot of my friends on the way. Um, they drowned, they, uh, they uh, died in detention centers, they died in jail. Um, a lot of them went homeless in Indonesia. Uh, a, lot, a lot of them got ill and sick and they died. So I was very lucky to get to Christmas Island. And, um, and then um, on Christmas Island, uh, I was detained there for, for, for a few months um, on Christmas Island. Again, I was lucky to be, got, uh, to be given <clears throat> permanent protection visa. Uh, maybe because you know uh, I was uh, uh, an accompanied minor under eighteen, uh, and um, and I was released in the community at the end of two thousand twelve. Uh, I was in Adelaide, South Australia. That's where I started my education journey. Um, I started from you know year twelve, did my schooling, and then applied and received scholarship here at Monash, uh, in Melbourne, and then I moved here. Um, um, but. Now the reason the, the reason I I wanted to study or I wanted to do a bachelor of arts major in international relation and human rights and doing law is because uh, at that around when I when I was released in the community uh, I I heard and I, I used to watch TV Australian politicians always you know uh, uh, sort of disrespecting us uh, I used yeah I watched Pauline Hanson all the time on TV at that time and some other Australian politicians politicizing refugees, demonizing refugees, disrespecting us and, I, and screwing me up all the times at that time, I remember. And I looked at sort of like, I looked at TV at the news, I'm like, well, that's not me. You know, she's not right about me. I knew that I'm a refugee. I knew my story. I knew uh, what we represent, who we are, but you know, these politicians are completely lying and misrepresenting us. So, and then I decided to study. I decided to do human rights because um, I always wanted to, you know, understand what human rights is because I felt like, you know, um, my human rights is not being respected in this country. So I, I wanted to um, study what human rights is, why it's not respected when it comes to refugees here in this country. And then I wanted, uh, I also wanted to do international relations because I wanted to understand how this system works. I finished my BA and then and then I thought to do law because I, you know, I I thought that you know studying law would help me to understand human rights law and refugee law. So with that experiences of becoming a refugee, uh, you know, I started my education journey. Um, but with my education. I also started, um, you know, wor working and volunteering with refugee-led organizations uh, here in Australia. Um, um, I I must say that today, where I am, I'm doing JD and I'm a bit successful in terms of my education. It's maybe because of these refugee-led organizations and the people that were volunteering in these organizations. I'm very grateful for this organization. I remember, I was uh, English was English is my third language. 
fourth language. And um, I was struggling with, you know, as uh, completing my year 12. And um, I found this organization helped me. And I, I successfully finished um, year 12. And then I remember I was struggling at university. Uh, I didn't know how to finish my degree. And then somehow I, uh, I heard about Asylum Seeker Resource Center. That's where, I, uh, that's where I got help. I connected with some mentors and some lawyers and they started helping me with, with everything. So, um, so I'm very helpful. Uh, I, I got a lot of help. I'm very grateful for being here. And, um, and um, yeah, so that's basically about me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sajad, for that incredible story um, coming all the way over from Afghanistan through so many different countries um, to Australia. And um, yeah, incredible, incredible story. And thank you so much for sharing it. Um, move on to a more of a kind of policy based question, I guess, um, around our immigration system here in Australia. And I would be interested to hear your thoughts on what you think the biggest faults are in Australia's immigration system. There are many, um, but what um, for, all, for all three of you would be your, your biggest problems that you see within our immigration system here? And we might start with Melvina. Where to start? There are, yeah, there are a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of issues. Um, I mean, you say immigration system, Piper, I'm going to focus on sort of um, the elements of the immigration system that affect people seeking asylum and refugees, just because that's my um, sort of experience. Um, so for me, I'd say sort of the number one issue at the moment is the immigration detention system that operates in Australia. Um, it's just become over time more and more inhumane. Um, for example, we don't, there's no time limit on the amount of days spent in detention. There's really limited oversight of decisions to detain people. Children continue to be able to be detained um, and the conditions in detention continue to deteriorate. So I think that a reform of the detention system is crucial. Um, offshore processing needs to be terminated permanently. Um, there's obviously far less people now being detained on Manus Island and, and um, Nauru than there were um, a number of years ago, but we still have people on Nauru, about, I think, just over 100, and same in PNG, there's still over 100 people there. Um, and there's also a lot of people that were in offshore processing centres that have been um, transferred to Australia but remain in limbo in terms of uh, not having um, any kind of uh, fixed legal status. So it continues to be a problem and I think until it's sort of put to bed it could rear up um, at any moment. Uh, so, so a permanent end to offshore processing is I think another much needed reform. Temporary protection visas, uh, another huge problem. Um, they were reintroduced um, by the Liberal government and lead to um, people who seek protection being put in really awful situations of just in sort of indefinite limbo in terms of not knowing how long they're actually going to be able to stay in Australia and not having the right to sponsor any family here uh, and also having to reapply and restate their claims for protection um, every three or five years. Um, I, I could go on, but um, I, I yeah, want to give Hannah and Sajad an opportunity to also comment, so I'll stop there. 
Thank you. Uh, maybe Hannah, if you want to jump in. Sure, um, absolutely echo what Malvina has said. It's uh, it's a really, it's a system in crisis. And I think that flows from a couple of key problems. And the first is that it's become very political. So it's sort of a narrative of othering that's been used to enormous success that has um, sort of self-perpetuated because of the results it's had um, for political parties. But it's really dangerous to use a system that affects people's lives um, in this way. The other major problem is that it's cumbersome and highly inefficient. Uh, tiny Act back in 1958, and now it's excluding people significantly as a result of its complexity, its size, its um, inscrutability. And the third is, as Malvina said, a lack of viable limitations, including a federal charter of human rights, for example. And so we see people in detention for, you know, some people have been in detention for over 14 years. Uh, and it's devastating to see, uh, aside from the high profile detention cases with people genuinely just languishing in our onshore facilities you know not many people know you know in broad meadows we have a place where a lot of people with serious health issues are detained um, it's over 130 people in detention with disability uh, and, and we see legislation springing from these conditions including last year's clarifying international obligations bill, which is essentially a statement that the government is willing to indefinitely detain. So I, so I think those are the conditions that led, that's, that have allowed um, the problems Malvina has articulated to prosper. And um, it's been heartening, and we might touch on this later to see a bit of a change um, there in recent weeks. Thanks, Hannah. Um, and Sajad, any, any further comments to add to that? Well, I agree with what the other speaker said. I just wanted to add that, um, you know, the immigration system here is uh, it's a very expensive system. It's very expensive. It's harmful. And it's against, uh, you know, human rights, international human rights law. So it's just, you know, we don't understand why Australian government spent millions of dollars to detain and punish innocent people for years. It's very expensive and it doesn't help. And it's also harmful, spending millions of dollars to harm refugees who are seeking asylum legally. I'm seeking asylum is a fundamental human right. It's legal to seek asylum. And we see Australian government spend lots of money to harm uh, innocent people. So it's such an expensive system to harm people. And also it's, like, it's, it's not good for you know, uh, Australia's reputation as a country. Absolutely, um, and such fantastic points, all of you, thank you. Um, touching on, I think it was Hannah, you were talking about how politicised this system has become and how damaging that has been to um, kind of a working system of immigration law. How important do you think it is that we uh, kind of focus our approach to shifting the public narrative around refugee policy and improving um, Australia's response to the refugee crisis. Do you think we need to be prioritising this kind of cultural change and shift in community values um, over kind of structural legal changes, or do you think it needs to be kind of a bit of a more of a mixture of both um, moving forward? I right, throw back to Hannah. 
Good question. Um, it's, it's really actually interesting to see how all the different angles of advocacy play out. Um, you know, you have so many um, avenues uh, pushing for change. You've got litigation, which might change the face of the law as well as an individual client. You might have um, cultural change within the department where um, continued advocacy for individuals makes change. You've got the incredible community organisations pushing for change and in particular, as Sajad mentioned, the refugee-led organisations um, and campaigning politically. Uh, and I think what we've seen recently is that it's the community that is dragging um, the government along to structural change. Uh, it shouldn't be that way, but they're sort of um, kicking and screaming on the way to meaningful change. And examples of that would be the New Zealand deal, um, the releases of the Medivac uh, refugees, and also the defeat of the strengthening the character test bill. It's, uh, I think, inconceivable for a lot of people working in this area that the same, um, that these things would have occurred in the lead up to an election uh, three years ago, uh, as they have now. And it's a real testament to organisations such as those Sajad has mentioned and their extraordinary um, impact on the community uh, in terms of affecting cultural change. Such good points. Um, Sajad or Malvina, did you have anything to add to that? Uh, yes, I absolutely agree with everything Hannah said. Um, in terms of sort of what's needed, structural change or cultural change, I mean, I think they're really interlinked. Um, and I think it also depends who's in power in terms of what needs, I guess, more emphasis. Um, I think at the root of, you know, the refugee issues and refugee policy being able to be politicised to the extent that it has been in, in recent years, the root of that really... Uh, is sort of inherent racism that exists within our society. It's also, I think, this artificial scarcity mentality of, you know, there's limited resources, there's limited jobs, there's, you know, we've got to protect what's ours and if people from the outside come in, we're going to be worse off in some way. Um, so I think that if we can shift those narratives, it would make it harder for, politi for politicians to use refugee policy as a political football like they have been. Um, and I think that was, I mean, a, a really practical example of that. I think the last time that happened um, on a national level successfully was in the lead up to the 2007 election when Kevin Rudd, one of his key platforms for that election was um, advocating for a more humane approach to, to refugee policy. Uh, and that was, there was sort of this wave of um, support around that. And he won. Um, unfortunately, I, in my view, I think he wasted the opportunity that he then had to, to really change the way that we approach refugee policy. But I think that opportunity was there. And what's important is I think it was an example of, of um, the narrative changing and people being open to the narrative changing. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Malvina. And Sajad, anything else to add to that? Yeah, not, not really, just same thing, community and organizations. I mean, uh, if I give an example, a quick example is that we saw uh, in, in, in recent uh, months when you know, uh, Afghanistan fell to Taliban, uh, we tried to push the Australian government to do something in relation to uh, people in Afghanistan, given that Australia was involved there for 20 years with all the you know, human rights violations there. 
but Australia wasn't doing anything. So we tried to, you know, uh, advocate and um, push different government to do something. So together with refugee-led organizations such as SRC, uh, Asylum Seekers uh, Resource Center, Refugee Council, and other organizations, and and and, and with with Afghan diaspora and Hazara communities, we kept, uh, you know, um, uh, doing our advocacy work. And um, we did some lobbying in Canberra. Hannah was there with with our effort, collective effort, and um, and, and and push. Uh, you know, eventually Australian government, you know, announced sixteen thousand five hundred uh, additional humanitarian visa for uh, 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 Afghans who are at risk, at, in at high risk in Afghanistan. So uh, that was very unexpected. Like we didn't expect that the government would do that considering liberal government in power, but we did that through our advocacy work. And also Australians, like for many years and for, for many months that we see Australian communities and Australian people, they have been, you know, writing letters, calling their MPs, you know, talking to governments, doing all these little things to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to, to make the government realize that, you know, in this country, it's not okay to do all this against refugees. And now we are, we, we are seeing that things are changing and we have, and, and we have witnessed for the last few weeks that, you know, many refugees are taking their permanent protection visa. Our visa cancellation has been stopped. Uh, our citizenship application has been started. My brother, who also arrived by boat, you know, recently got his uh, uh, citizenship application. I also, uh, you know, um, got a news on my citizenship application and I applied to get my mom um, here in Australia. I put their application and, and it got accepted. So it's all of a sudden we saw this change from liberal government. We can say that, you know, community or organization can do a lot in terms of shifting the narratives and, you know, uh, make the government to uh, to work in a certain way. Yeah, that's so fantastic to hear. I love a good news story. Um, uh, yeah, I'm so so glad to hear that things are looking a little up for you and your family. Um, moving on to a slightly different topic, um, we've seen the effects of climate change um, getting increasingly worse in recent years. Um, people are having to flee their homes due to natural disasters, droughts, um, rapidly rising sea levels, washing away um, coastal communities and island communities. Often these people who are escaping as a result of um, climate change impacts are known as climate refugees. Um, although for anyone who's studied or looked into refugee law before um, and you've noticed the refugee convention's definition of a refugee, um, this does not actually expand to include people um, escaping the impact of climate change as, as official refugees. Um, what, what do you think is going to happen in um, years to come and what needs to happen to ensure that climate refugees are being provided proper protection um, and or are there other kind of avenues outside of the Refugee Convention better, to, better suited to um, ensuring that these people have adequate protections moving forward. Um, Alvina, I might throw back to you. Oh, what a huge question. Um, look, I, I don't, I don't, can't, I'm not going to come up with the solution of how to protect people um, displaced by climate change, but I will say uh, I don't think the Refugee Convention is the right avenue to, to create those protections, and that's because 
I mean, it's already a system that's buckling under the existing load of refugee flows um, without even trying to incorporate and sort of expand the definition of who is a refugee. So in terms of practical solutions, I, I don't, I know there's, you know, there's obviously academic debate and, and some moves to try to expand the definition of refugees to include people who are displaced due to climate change. But I'm not, I don't have much faith that even if that were achieved, that it would actually lead to much benefit for people in those situations. Um, I mean, climate change is such a massive issue. It's, you know, we're going to in probably very, we already are. And, you know, in the next decade, we're going to see unprecedented refugee flows as a result of climate change. And so I think there, there needs to be a whole, a whole new approach um, of dealing with that effectively. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not convinced that, that the existing sort of refugee framework is, is the way to go. Yeah, interesting. Thank you, Melvina. Um, Hannah, did you have anything to add or did you have any other, other ideas on how even within the existing legislative frameworks we could be approaching climate refugees? It's, as Malvina said, it's a really difficult one. I mean, what is not really part of the public discourse is how narrow uh, the definition of refugee, in fact, is, uh, which I, I think is often acted in the government's interest in creating a kind of panic about it. It's a very, very strict um, definition, and it is difficult to see how it could usefully be expanded to include climate refugees. Um, it might be that an another international instrument is required. It might be that there is some um, adaption that can work, but it doesn't seem a natural fit, um, although obviously something that, that needs urgent addressing. Absolutely. And so, Jared, I'm not sure if you had anything else to add to that, but um, feel free to step in if you do. My area of expertise, but I heard, I just thought it, it's, it's also good news. Um, uh, uh, Malvina might know about this. So next month in May, I'm going to Geneva uh, for UNHCR NGOs consultation. And one of the um, uh, one of the uh, point that the consultation is is to focus on 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 this area to talk about the uh, people that uh, displaced people that has happened from the climate change. I think they're going to talk about that to sort of like incorporate that into refugee definition. So, yeah. So certainly right. about we'll have to keep an eye out on on that one. That's, that sounds like a very very interesting convention. Um, and yeah, looking, looking forward to see what comes out of that. Um, thank you all for answering that question. I was a, it was a hit close to home for that one. I um, really, yeah, enjoy kind of discussions around that and the kind of intersectionality of refugee law and all of these, of these different kind of um, topics that you can expand out um, to look within that. Um, moving on to another question that I had, um, was just I can, I can imagine that working in refugee law and advocacy work would be both like very rewarding um, but also incredibly mentally draining um, so what are some of the techniques that you've developed over the years to look after your mental health um, and not letting yourselves get burnt out through the work that you're doing in this space um, so Jad, maybe if we start with you it's, it's, a, it's such a um, good question for me um, yeah, so uh, 
for me, like when I was advocating for refugees and, and working and advocating in this area, it has been really difficult as a refugee because for, for the last, uh, you know, since 2012, I, ha I have been sort of, you know, sharing my stories, talking to people, media here and there. It has been very difficult because often we get re-traumatized from how we advocate and how we work in this space. This space is very emotional and very emotional, particularly for refugees themselves. So um, how I cope with this is that, um, you know, uh, for me, I have been always engaged with organizations. So organizations have been behind me to support me with my advocacy work and everything. So every time that I, you know, sort of like felt uh, uh, kind of re-traumatized or like if I had some difficulties, uh, in terms of uh, working in this space or advocacy, I always, you know, um, uh, sought help from organizations. So, uh, for example, I remember I did this um, program with the uh, SRC uh, advocacy program, how to advocate effectively for refugees. And after a few months, I got, I got, I found, like, I found myself with some sleeping issues and other difficulties. I reached out to SRC and that we, I got help and support from them. But then after that, you know, it gets easier and then we get sort of like get used to it and it doesn't happen anymore. Good to hear you've had some support there, Sajad. Um, Hannah or Melvina, did you have anything that you've particularly found helpful? Uh, it's, it's hard. Um, it's not for everyone. Um, I think that's true, but there are definitely ways you can cope with, uh, will learn to cope better with, difficult work. I've certainly noticed such an improvement um, in the way I deal with things over my career, but part of it is how I mentally frame it. I feel very privileged to get to do the work. Um, I am so grateful to hear people's stories and to be able to help. Um, it feels good to develop the skills so that you can be effective and um, put people's wishes into action. Um, it's also a creative process often in that you, when you advocate, um, it's very, uh, well, it's um, stimulating. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, intellectual benefit to the work as well. And I think probably almost my number one um, tool has been colleagues. I really love the people working in the sector I really admire them. Um, it's great to work in an industry where people are of a like mind and um, you can, yeah, I, I think everybody in this area enjoys each other's company as well as respects each other's work. And I, I have drawn so much strength from the strength of other colleagues, but, but certainly it's, um, you know, it's always a work in progress, I think, when you work in an, in an area like ours. Absolutely. Um, thank you. And Melvina, anything to add? Uh, definitely colleagues. So having people to sort of um, regularly debrief with uh, and feel like you're, you know, working in a, working as part of a movement rather than as an individual, I think is a huge help. Um, and like Hannah said, I think the refugee sector is incredible at, at making you feel like you're part of something much bigger and surrounded by, you know, really committed, intelligent, passionate people um, that are working for a similar cause and that that's a huge support and help um, boundaries for me have been really important uh, so not take there's a there's a huge um, amount of burnout 
uh, in lawyers and, and definitely within the refugee sector as well. So being really careful, especially if you're kind of trying to stay in it in the, for the long run, um, about not taking on too much work and being able to say no, there's an incredible amount of unmet need. And so there's always going to be more work to take on and really compelling cases to, to you know, that people ask if you can assist with, um, but just knowing that you're, you're not able to do everything and, and yeah, having those boundaries. Uh, I work part-time and I've done that for a long time quite consciously, um, partly to try to, you know, have a bit of a balance and, and move away from, from the work where you're, you know, on a sort of in a really confronting way faced with gross injustice on a, on a daily basis um, and debriefing as well. So I've sort of for the most of my career engaged in professional debriefing with a counsellor uh, on a pretty regular basis, um, yeah. So those, those are my tips. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone. Um, I might open up now. We've got 10 minutes left. Um, if anyone from the audience would like to ask a question, if you could just raise your hand um, and unmute and you can ask away. If anyone has a question, Darren, feel free to ask a question. Um, hello, everyone. It's it was so amazing to hear um, all of your uh, your stories and like your expertise on this area. It's like so so nice to hear people that are, like on the ground and doing that work. Um, so I was just really interested in um, Malvina, like your work in Indonesia. Like I'm I'm Indonesian, and um, I'm doing refugee law like this semester, and I'm falling in love with the with the, this area of law as well and I only just learned this this semester that Indonesia is quite a, a big part of Australia's um, refugee system. Um, I wanted to ask do you find that the views around refugees in Indonesia are similar to those in Australia like how you said that there was like a lot of like inherent racism and there was a lot of like viewpoints about how there's this kind of like scarcity behind our resources and stuff um even though there's a lot more than people think um is that do you find a, a pattern in in a lot of countries like refugee policies I, I'd like to throw that over to Sajad I think to start with given he lived in Indonesia as a refugee and, and I'm sure had first-hand experience of um sort of community attitudes towards refugees um, I honestly, I, I found Indonesians are good people. Not, I, I didn't find anything in particular, like something like no difficulties in terms of uh, people. Um, I was there for like around six months. And um, uh, it's just that the, the only problem that we didn't have any right, no legal right to work, no right to drive, no right to education, no right. But in terms of people, people were very good. Only one challenge. One one challenge is uh, there for refugees, particularly from uh, from Afghanistan or Iran, is that these refugees from Afghanistan and Iran are uh, uh, most most of them are uh, Shia Muslims and uh, living in in a Sunni majority uh, state of Indonesia. So that's the only difficulty that I experienced, and I heard my friends were scared of not exposing their religion for public because we felt like we felt we always felt threatened that if 
we if we are exposed as Shia Muslims, then the public and the Indonesian people wouldn't like that. Um, yeah, I mean, Vera, from my, from my experience, I was only there for a year and it was back in 2009, 2010. So I feel like I had a pretty limited insight. But yeah, I, I certainly didn't feel that there were there was overarching sort of ill will towards people seeking asylum. I was working within the refugee sector that was there to help people seeking asylum. So obviously, um, you know, the, the attitudes that I was exposed to were already curated in terms of it was people that, that wanted to help. Um, but, I mean, Indonesia's refugee policies is certainly not great. They haven't, you know, um, signed the convention. They routinely detain refugees. Um, they grant refugees very few rights in terms of when they are actually in Indonesia. So the, the policy isn't, yeah, is, is pretty problematic. Um, but, yeah, I feel like I've got a limited insight into societal attitudes. It would, the only other thing I'd comment is during my time there, it certainly wasn't a topic that was in the headlines in the same way that it is in Australia. It was far less of an issue um, than it is here. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Darren. And thank you, Sajada Melvina, for um, answering that one. Did anyone else have any questions at all that would, they would like to ask? Yes, Ben, go ahead. Hello, thank you so much guys for all your insights so far. It's been really great. Um, yeah, just love to hear your sort of thoughts um, and reflections on major releases recently of the majority of the Medivac cohort um, from detention and Park Hotel, for example, being emptied. Um, and the fact that it's taken nine years for these people in detention to be released. Um, what do you think this says about sort of the political context in Australia and how do you think um, we need to reflect on this in terms of making sure something like that can never happen again? Thanks, Ben. Yeah, really a big moment and um, utterly disgraceful that people were detained for that length of time. I mean, if I think if we reflect on... What was happening to us nine years ago it's it's a lifetime ago and uh, it's not just the the time it's the psychological pressure and uncertainty it's the um, randomness of releases up to that point it's the conditions it's the variation of advice the um, pressure to leave as well um, that we know gets placed on a lot of people in detention so I think when the news came it was pretty exhausting, although a great relief for a lot of people in the sector um, and very much reflecting um, what we were talking earlier about, um, about how tied to the political uh, migration and refugee law is. Uh, they, they had to do it uh, because of community expectations. And it's absolutely not an own motion. Uh, the government was in a position where they felt it could cost them votes and um, that's thanks to the work of advocates. Uh, and it's a really stark representation of how we use detention as a, a tool um, to, to play out strength and protection to the community completely inappropriately and at extraordinary cost to individuals and also to you know, Australia's moral um, 
I, I suppose, for want of a better word, soul. And, and to prevent it ever happening again, I, I mean, there will be investigations, there'll be reports, um, there'll be information that comes out. I think it was such a novel uh, use of hotels. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of it. I don't think it's seen as particularly successful by the government, but it, it, you've got to stay vigilant even despite these releases. Uh, you've got to keep advocating to make sure they're not used again. Absolutely. Thank you, Hannah. Um, and thank you, Ben, for your question. So, Jado or Melvina, did you have anything else to add to that before we move on to another question? No. no cool. Um, all right, well, we probably just in the interest of time have maybe time for one more question. Um, I thought it might be nice just to finish off with something that you, all three of you, are particularly proud of over your time working in this area of law and advocacy. Um, it's, it's such an influential area um, to be working in, um, and I'd love to hear what um yeah what what you've kind of taken out of it as kind of something that you can look back on and be and be really really proud of your work in this area maybe if we start with melvina yeah we, we needed a bit of a prompt didn't we <laughs> <laughs> um well oh, i mean the the thing that i'm most proud of is working with so many amazing people to assist them through a really unfair process of presenting their claims for protection. Um, that's sort of the most, I mean, yeah, it's not what, it, I'll talk about other, some other things, but I think that's the, the, the most important to me and the most sort of rewarding uh, part of my work is to really help people tell their stories and try to navigate a really complex and unfair system uh, in the best way possible. Um, but in terms of, uh, yeah, and another sort of experience that was really amazing and also something that I'm proud of was the Malaysia case that I think you mentioned in my intro. So I was quite, that was sort of at the very beginning of my legal career. I think I was the second, maybe second or third year post-admission and I just started working at Refugee Legal um, and I travelled with another Refugee Legal lawyer to Christmas Island um, and helped prepare um, the various materials, evidence, evidence materials that was needed for that matter. It was, it was a high court case that was challenging Australia's deal with Malaysia to transfer 800 refugees to Malaysia. Um, it was a very, very dodgy refugee deal. Um, it was again, Australia attempting to shirk its responsibility for protecting people um, and trying to sort of show that it would deliver on its threat and promise that it would never resettle anyone who came by boat in Australia. Uh, so that was the beginnings of, of that sort of um, approach by the government, and that was one of the first attempts that they made to ship people offshore. Um, so that was an incredible experience. Um, what else? More, more recently, I've, um, Russell Kennedy... Uh, has been involved in or was involved back in 2018, 2019 um, in the raft of cases to transfer people from Manus Island and Nauru. Um, so people who were being detained there and weren't being offered adequate medical treatment. 
um, and needed desperately to be transferred to a different country to be able to access that medical treatment. Um, so we had a bunch of, of people that we assisted in a bunch of cases um, where we sought um, urgent injunctions to bring people to Australia so they could get the, the medical treatment they needed. Um, and that was, a, again, a really incredible experience and worked with a fantastic team of people, uh, including a bunch of other law firms that were also doing the same work. Um, it was an effort that was then coordinated by the Human Rights Law Centre. Um, so, again, felt like a really kind of um, amazing collaboration within the refugee sector. Fantastic. Um, thank you. And maybe Sajad, if you wanted to speak to anything. Yeah, so for me, like working and being in this space have been incredibly rewarding. I, I mean, I have, uh, first of all, I'm very happy to be here, to get here, to get education. I have learned and grown so much. I have found a lot of friends connected with a lot of organizations and, and doing a lot of work, helping people. And, um, and I'm very proud of, you know, being in Australia and uh, given that, you know, in Australia, we have too many refugee-led organizations and people who are, you know, uh, doing a lot in terms of uh, for the rights, needs and protection of refugees and asylum and people seeking asylum in the region. So very proud of that. And uh, it's very well achieving. Beautiful, thank you. And Hannah, last one. Yeah, look, it's a it's an area where it's really nice to to celebrate your wins. Things that always stick with me are um, when clients uh, feel moved by the statement that we might prepare for them that reflects their story. It's really nice to be able to tell a story in a way that does a person justice. Um, I really find difficult policy advocacy very satisfying. Um, a recent win against the strengthening of the character test bill was really difficult and it was um, really important. So it was amazing to see everyone's work on that. Um, and litigation is always fantastic as well. I've really enjoyed being involved in a lot of very interesting um, litigation cases. But nothing really compares as well to just when a client is released, when you get the, the word of a good decision and get to pass it on. Um, it's it's a really really rewarding area that I just get so much from, um, and that I feel I feel really lucky to be working in. It's not it's not often you get to um, have a livelihood that is in fact uh, ethical and in line with your values and where you can be effective. So um, thrilled. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and thank you all of you, Sajad, Hannah and Malvina, um, for your incredible, incredible insights um, over tonight. I really thoroughly enjoyed um, listening to all um, of you speak tonight. And I'm sure everyone else is the same. In exciting news, this, this event or the recording of this event will actually be the first in a series um, of podcasts run in collaboration with the Progressive Law Network and Monash with Refugees. We'll have a series of conversations with um, people who have gone through that refugee asylum seeker experience um, just to share their stories. So it um, would be fantastic if you could follow along with that one. And yes, once again, thank you all for coming um, and thank you to our speakers. And I think that just about brings us to the end of tonight. Thank you all and goodbye. <laughs>